Start with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 21. God's word for us this morning is from Job chapter 21. Hear God's word. Then Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak, and after I have spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live? reach old age, and grow mighty in power. Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves, and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him, and what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. You say, God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk, the the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There's nothing left of your answers but falsehood. We use the expression, just the facts, ma'am, to indicate that we want to stick to the facts without including personal opinions and speculations or unnecessary information. It suggests a call for clear and concise truth, free of embellishments or emotions. Well, Job is here in this chapter hoping that the facts will convince his friends of their wrong view about him in uh, relation to his suffering. This is now the sixth speech that Job has given to his friends. 
Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have by now each given two speeches, and each time Job has responded. And uh, this response here of Job in chapter 21 is his response to Zophar's second speech. So chapter 21 brings us to the end of rounds one and two, where each of his friends have spoken and Job has responded to them. Round three will begin with Eliphaz's speech to Job in chapter 22. And to that speech, Job will respond, and that takes up chapters 23 and 24. Bildad will give a third and final speech in chapter 25, and Job will take up chapters 26 through 31, responding to Bildad's third speech. Zophar is actually done giving speeches, and with chapter 32, we are introduced to Elihu, whose speeches will carry us through chapter 37. Chapters 38 through 41 will give us the Lord's answer to Job with only one short response from Job in chapter 40. Chapter 42 brings us to the conclusion, which starts out with Job and ends with the Lord rebuking Job's friends and restoring Job's fortunes. So chapter 21 is yet part of the section in which Job is responding to his friends and his emphasis here in what he says to his friends changes. All along, his friends have said that his loss of his children, his wealth, and his health is judgment from God, such judgment that only wicked unbelievers experience. And so they have been accusing Job of sin. They have called him to repentance. They have said that's the solution to turning things around for him. And while Job has, in various ways, called into question their system based on this idea of strict retribution. Yet up until now, his main focus has been on his relationship with God. Knowing that he is a man of faith and integrity, Job has struggled to understand his relationship with God. He's, he's been pondering, why is God treating me like this? What am I supposed to do? How can it be that God would unleash upon me what certainly feels like wrath, even though I'm a justified sinner saved by grace through faith? We find that Job in his speeches to his friends does consistently end up in a place of faith. It's not that he's done struggling in his faith, but what has happened over and over is that Job expresses his dismay with how God is treating him, but he ends up uh, laying hold of what he knows is true, truth that he can grab onto as an anchor for his soul. And this struggle of Job to understand what's going on is not unique to him in Scripture. Uh, Asaph in Psalm 73 was nearly envious of the wicked because of how they prosper. Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 12 questions God's ways with the wicked. He says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Now, those kinds of questions can certainly be asked in a spirit of unbelief, but it's not necessarily the case, as we find with both Asaph and Jeremiah. Christopher Ashe, in his commentary on Job, explains this. He says, one mark of faith is, is not to let go of the truths we do know, even as we grapple with what seems to be their contradiction. Commenting on the fact that Jeremiah begins his complaint with the words, righteous are you, O Lord. Derek Kidner writes, it was wise of Jeremiah. And, and an example worth remembering, 
to precede what he could not grasp with what he could not deny, namely the righteousness of God. I think that's an important concept to keep in mind, to precede, to precede what he could not grasp with what he could not deny. And that's the pattern with Job. Job is deeply perplexed over what is happening to him, but Job is latched on to the hope of a mediator who will plead his cause before God. At the end of chapter 19, he gave that amazing profession of faith that he knows that his Redeemer lives and that in his flesh he shall see God. Now, he doesn't explain how he knows this, but that's exactly how faith is, is it not? Faith is being certain of things hoped for and convinced of things not seen. We live by faith and not by sight. We trust in the promises of God even when they seem contradictory to experience. And the point to get back to our text is that Job's main struggle up until now has been with God. Verse 4, he says, As for me, is my complaint against man? And the implied answer is, no, it's with God. And because of this, and because God has not been willing to answer Job's questions, Job goes on to ask, why should I not be impatient? But with chapter 21, Job changes perspective and turns directly to confronting the system of belief of his friends who have all along insisted that bad things happen to bad people. And Eliphaz asserts, for example, in back in chapter 1520, this is what he, he said. He says, the wicked man writhes in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Bildad, back in chapter 18, verse 5, said regarding the wicked, the light is dark in his tent and his lamp above him is put out. So far in chapter 20, verse 5, uh, has said that the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment. This is just a quick summary of each of the of, of things that each of the three friends have said, the, their ongoing message that essentially the wicked will be judged immediately in this life. Um, Job challenges that. And Job points to facts that prove they are wrong. And based on what we believe is the validity of these facts, the, the validity of them seems obvious, I have taken as the theme, the triumph of the facts. And uh, we'll consider this theme under three points. First of all, the facts introduced. Second, the facts substantiated. And then third, uh, thirdly, we'll spend some time on, on conclusion and application. So we begin with the facts. And Job introduces the facts of the case really by means of questions. Um, hope you have realized that questions are not only a way of seeking information. A question can actually be an indirect way of making a point. Um, and the first question that Job asks as a way to challenge his friend's position is there in verse 7. He says, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? He asks why these things happen as though the facts themselves are already established. We don't get around actually to even hearing the answer to why, but rather in asking this question the way he has, Job is setting forth certain facts. There are three facts in verse 7 concerning the wicked, that they live rather than die. They reach old age rather than die untimely deaths. They grow mighty in power, which speaks of physical strength as well as as well as power associated with wealth and, and prosperity. And then he goes on in verses 8 through 13 to offer 
substantiation or evidence, and we will consider that evidence coming up in our second point. But for now, Job has asserted a direct challenge to the view of his friends that the wicked in this life always experience death and destruction. And then the second question is presented by Job in verses 17 and 18 in four separate but related questions. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? That their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. Now, there's no doubt that there are times when the lamp of the wicked is put out and that calamity comes upon them and that God distributes pains in his anger and that the wicked are like straw and chaff before the judgment of God. Job is not denying these things. He's not denying that the wicked experience calamity even in this life. And of course, they experience judgment in the life to come. The leading question regarding all of this is how often, he says, how often do these things occur? He's talking about in this life. Job asks how often these things occur as a challenge to the claim of his friends that on earth these things always happen and right away. A third question designed to make a statement is found in verse 22. Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? Before and after verse 22, Job is describing what happens to the wicked. And the point then of verse 22 is that there are wicked who are on high. And on high is a Hebrew expression that refers to people who are in positions of power. They are people in positions of authority with influence and prestige. They are exalted in society. They are respected people. Now, not all wicked people are such, as Job will even go on to explain, but there needs to be a reckoning with the fact that some wicked people die while living high on the hog. And then we have a fourth searching question in verses 29 and 30. Have you not asked those who travel the roads? Do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? And uh, this is in the context of the two related questions of verse 28 that Job imagines his friends asking. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked live? So he anticipates his antagonistic friends pointing out that they don't know of any wicked people that God allows to continue to live and that unless Job can show them the dwellings of the wicked, his point is moot. But Job's friends are the ones who have claimed to have universal knowledge of God's dealings with the wicked. Job questions here how much research they've actually done. He calls them to broaden their horizons, to ask travelers who have gone to other lands what they have seen. And Job is wisely insisting that just because his friends don't know of a current, personal, close-to-home example doesn't mean that they don't know how God handles the wicked in every situation. No doubt there are wicked who are judged in this life, whose power, whose dynasties disappear under the judgment of God. But what about wicked people who are delivered from trouble, the evil man who is spared in the day of calamity and rescued in the day of wrath, verse 30. Job insists that if his friends will talk to travelers who have walked around a bit and experienced a bit of the world, they will tell you that there are wicked people who still have their dwellings. 
and who have even faced what appeared to be judgment, but then the judgment was turned back. They were rescued. They were delivered. They were spared in the day of calamity. The facts are evident. They're evident to those who are observant, to those who are willing to accept the truth without preconceived prejudices. Which brings us to the second point and to how Job substantiates his facts. By the question of verse 7, Job has indirectly stated that the wicked live, they reach old age and grow mighty in power. Well, what's the proof? In verses 8 through 13, we find substantiation of Job's point that the wicked are not always experiencing God's judgment. He says their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. If you think about it, if, they're, if the wicked were immediately destroyed, there would be no wicked. But experience and observation prove that the wicked have children and they have grandchildren and their houses, which refers to their households, their, their families, they don't face looming dangers. There's no rod of judgment that is beating them, unlike Job who pleaded in chapter 9, 34, let God take his rod away from me. To the contrary, for the wicked, their herds are increasing because when their cows are bred, none end up open. When it comes time to calf, none miscarry. Their family life is marked by the joy of happy, carefree children who can go outside and play without fear of harm. And they're singing and there's dancing. And in general, their lives are marked by prosperity. And that they go down to Sheol in peace doesn't mean that they are at peace with God. It doesn't mean that in death they escape his judgments. Not at all. But here, in peace means in an instant. The idea being that they are spared the agony of a long and painful decline into death due to a lingering illness. No, they just go quickly. When it's time to die, they go quickly into the grave. Moving into verse 14, reading between the lines, we believe that Job is anticipating what his friends are going to say. They're going to say something like this. Wait a minute, Job, this wonderful family life of peace and prosperity must mean that these are good people. It must, they, they are believers, no doubt. How do you know that they are wicked? And in verses 14 and 15, we have Job pointing out that there are people who live exactly as, as he has described in, in all of this prosperity, who say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? In verse 16, we either have a question, like we find it in the ESV, or it could be a statement. The ESV has Job asserting that the perspective of the wicked is that they don't need God because their prosperity has come through the work of their hands. And Job insists that this perspective, this counsel of the wicked, is far from what he believes. If verse 16 is a statement, it would read, Behold, their prosperity is not in their hand. And the idea would be that it's in the hand of God. And that that's the, the way it actually is, despite the opinion or counsel of the wicked who insist that they are their own masters. Job does not share their opinion. 
And the point is that these prosperous, wicked are people who openly speak about how they don't want God's fellowship. They're not going to follow his law. They have no desire to serve God. And if they pray to him, it's only going to be for what they selfishly think they can get from him, like the prosperity gospel people of today. And Job says, that's their testimony. The very words that are spoken by the people whose lives are going well. There's no other conclusion then to be made than that these prosperous people are unbelievers. The question that Job asks about how often the wicked experience judgment in verses 17 and 18 sets forth the fact that they don't always experience calamity that brings them to an end. And so Job anticipates his friend responding by saying, well, their children will pay. They will pay the price. Judgment will come. Verse 19, you say, God stores up their iniquity for their children. But that the children of the wicked would experience judgment evades the issue. What about these wicked adults? The parents who end up dying without facing any judgment in this life. How is that just? How does this fit the system of his friends with their insistence that the wicked get what's coming to them in this life. In verses 19b and 20 is Job's assessment of what justice should look like according to his friends. Let him, that is God, pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. And verse 21 explains, for what do they care for their houses, that is, for their families after them, when the number of their months is cut off. In other words, in the grave, the wicked who have gone to the grave without facing judgment, without facing troubles of life, they're not going to know what's happened to their children. They're dead. Why are they going to care about what happens in this life? And notice, if Job is right about his friends being willing to take up this argument, that God in some cases stores up the iniquity of the wicked for their children, that would be an admittance, would it not, that the wicked don't always see justice right away in this life. The question of verse 22 asserts that God doesn't always act in a way that we can predict, such as when he ends up judging those wicked who are on high. Um, the proof is verse 23, one dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure. His pail is full of milk, marrow of his bones moist. That's the kind of justice we like to see, namely the wicked who have openly rejected God, who mock God, who mock God's people, not being allowed to continue to prosper. But the point is that for such justice to take place, they had to be prospering from an earthly point of view when God took them from this life. Does this never happen? According to Job's friends, According to their system, the wicked are never going to be pulled down from being on high because the system doesn't allow them to be on high in the first place. Job goes on to say in verse 24, another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. And so Job is saying there's not a one-size-fits-all explanation of what happens to the wicked. Job says we've got to allow for exceptions and, and variation. Some wicked do prosper up until the day they die, and others have miserable lives. And Job explains in verse 26 that regardless of how their earthly lives may differ, they lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Job is asked, will any teach God knowledge? 
Job's observations so, show that God's ways with men are beyond our knowing. There is not one way that God handles the wicked in this life, which should tell, which should tell us that God is in charge and he is going to do as he wishes. There's also the fact that there are wicked people in society who are alive and well. Wicked princes living in palaces. Your average wicked person living in his tent and that day considered normal housing for a nomadic people. And the proof that they are not immediately judged is offered in verses 31 through 33. Verse 31, who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? Is every wicked person confronted? Is every wicked person punished as he deserves by society or by God? Is it not evident that there are people who get away with their wickedness? In fact, there are often people who idolize the wicked so that the wicked are even exalted in death. Verses 32 and 33, when he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. The idea is that his death, actually this, the death of this wicked man, calls forth this grand procession. A memorial is built on his grave and is even guarded so that it's not desecrated. He's not buried in the place of the outcasts, but in the valley, the traditional place of burial for the honored. That the wicked are followed is not simply that there's this crowd of followers in the funeral procession, but there are people who follow after him in terms of following his example. He's not the first wicked person to have died with honor. Those who go before him are innumerable. This scenario of wicked men being honored in death is not something new. We may not like it, but it's been that way for a long time. The facts are clear. The facts destroy the arguments that Job's friends have used against him. Verse 34 is the only logical conclusion. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? It's the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes for that which is vanity, which is meaningless, worthless, useless. There's nothing left, he says, of your answers but falsehood. This brings us to some words of conclusion and application. In verse 7, the question was asked, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? And Job has focused on the facts of what happens to the wicked in this life. He's not really answered the why. Do we know why? Well, Romans chapter 2 offers some explanation. When the apostle asks in verse 4 and following, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It says there that even the wicked experience God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. He doesn't give them immediately the judgment they deserve. And this should be evident from the fact that if God allows the wicked to live even at all, if he allows them to make a living, he allows them to have families, to go on vacation, to buy things, in other words, to experience anything pleasant, anything comfortable at all, he is withholding his judgment. All of us deserve to be cast immediately into hell for the sin of Adam and for our own sins that we commit daily. And God is not obligated to show any sinner kindness, forbearance, and patience 
but he does. He chooses to be kind to sinners. And of course, the greatest demonstration of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience is God sending his own son to die in our place in order to suffer what we deserve for our sins. Why? Why does God do this? Why is he forbearing, patient, and kind? Well, to lead us to repentance, Paul explains. God's kindness, when understood in the context of our sin and rebellion, should lead us to be amazed at our gracious God, should prompt us to grieve over our sins against him, should prompt us to repent and to seek his forgiveness. His kindness, his forbearance and patience should lead you to expect God to be gracious to you when you confess your sins to him, even though he is a holy and just God. So obliterated is the excuse that you can't dare to go to God because all you can expect from a God of such holiness and righteousness is judgment. No, he is not a harsh God whose only attributes are righteousness and justice. His stance toward even unbelievers in this life demonstrates he is a God of love and kindness, and that should lead all to repentance. So why does God not immediately judge all wicked unbelievers? Because he is communicating to them that he is a kind and gracious God. Romans 2 also explains that when sinners respond to God's kindness with hard and impenitent hearts, they are ultimately storing up wrath against themselves. Part of God's design in allowing sinners to experience his goodness is so that when they reject him, as many do, becomes clear all the more how deserving they are of the judgment they will receive. And so in the end, for those who do not repent, to experience God's kindness only leads to greater condemnation that they are going to experience at death or at the Lord's second coming. Otherwise, there's a lot of mystery, is there not, that surrounds God's dealings with believers and unbelievers in this life that prevents us from thoroughly answering why the wicked sometimes prosper in this life. It's actually part of wisdom to admit that there are some things we're not going to understand, not fully, that we must simply accept. Job appears to be realizing an important truth that is going to be key to his eventually gaining peace, which is that we are not always going to understand God's ways. But we have to simply trust that he knows what he is doing. The question of verse 22, will any teach God knowledge? That's one that we ought to do, that that we do well to reflect on regularly. We tend to think that we should be the ones in charge as we question how God is running the world fact of the matter is that regardless of how confusing and seemingly contradictory things may appear to us with our limited knowledge, God knows all things, and he does what is right and what is good, and all according to his all-wise plan. In Job, uh, here in 21 verse 4, Job admits to being impatient. Did you catch that? He says, why should I not be impatient? I read earlier from James, the book of James, and has James misunderstood the character of Job? In both the book of Job and in James, the word for patience is sometimes translated as endurance or steadfastness. That's the idea. 
fact, when you see the word patience in the Bible, it's often the translation of a word that means to be long-suffering or long-tempered, which is the, the idea of that is, is to have a long fuse. It means that you are able to put up with being abused by others without getting quickly angry. Well, the word that James uses for Job is a different word that refers specifically to endurance and to steadfastness in one's faith while under the pressures of suffering. The Hebrew word that Job uses for himself refers to the same thing. It refers to endurance. To be impatient is to be discouraged. It is to struggle to endure. And this is interesting and instructive because from Job's perspective, he was immersed in this emotional struggle that left him feeling discouraged. Nevertheless, James says that Job did endure, that there was steadfastness. And specifically in the New Testament, when, when uh, this word is brought up, it, it takes the form really of waiting for Jesus. It means that you're looking to him, you're, you're trusting in him in the midst of all of life's difficulties. You're trusting in him to make all things right that currently seem out of whack. And this is exactly what Job did. He struggled, yes, but he never let go of the fact that God is the one who has the answers. And in 19, chapter 19, by faith he lay hold of his living Redeemer and in the hope that in his flesh he would see God. Job has certainly faced great, has faced great discouragement, and, and he has even become angry in his desire for answers. But he has not given up the hope of God being a gracious, covenant God who saves those who trust in him. And we see progress in Job's spiritual state in his growing acceptance of not having to fully understand God's ways. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to come to a point where you no longer struggle in your faith to have real faith. The ultimate test of endurance, uh, the, the test of patience, is whether or not you continue looking to God and trusting that he has the answers that you need. The bottom line is that it is impossible for us to determine God's attitude toward anyone on the basis of his providential dealings. Chapter 21 is focused on God's dealings with the wicked. The, fact, um, the facts that are here presented tell us that God sometimes give easy, he sometimes gives easy providences to the wicked in this life. And the opposite is also implied, that God sometimes gives hard providences to his children in this life. It's really the gospel, it's really the good news of Jesus coming to give his life as a ransom for sinners that accounts for this. Because again, on the one hand, there are the good things that God in his providence gives even to the wicked that are designed to lead sinners to repentance, which means that there are good things that happen to bad people to give sinners a chance to take advantage of the salvation offered in Christ. On the other hand, there are struggles that are given to good people, to talking about believers. I'm not talking about inherently good. No, but we are good. We are righteous in Christ. And he gives us struggles that are designed to bless us spiritually. Your hardships, children of God, are not about wrath. They're not about condemnation. Christ took all of that upon himself when he died on the cross. And so in some, there will be earthly blessings that serve the purpose of condemnation when people refuse to repent and accept Christ's forgiveness. And there will be earthly struggles that serve salvation because Christ has borne all of the curse of sin. 
for those who do repent and who accept Christ's forgiveness. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that for each one of us here, we would be those who repent of sin, who by faith accept Christ's forgiveness, understanding that his death on the cross was a substitutionary death, paying the penalty of our sin. Father, we pray that we might recognize that Christ's coming in so many ways affects this world and what is going on in the lives of people around us. Lord, we pray that as a chance is given to the wicked to, to experience the kindness, the patience, the forbearance of God, that, Father, that as they experience your kindness, that this would lead them to repentance, that they would recognize that you are a good God, a God worthy of trust, a God that to whom they can confess their sins and know that he will be gracious. Pray that, Father, many will come to know you in that way. We pray for those of us who experience as believers trials, difficulties, that we will understand that these are sent to us actually to create steadfastness in us, to increase our faith, to build us up spiritually. So, Father, may we, with eyes of faith, see beyond the, the mere superficial things that are going on to see that you have a great plan that is in place and, and that is being carried out. And, Father, even if we don't understand all that's taking place, give us, we pray, the faith to, to trust that you know what is best. Uh, may we accept, um, submit to your, your plan for us. And, uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.